How many of you love sci-fi? I mean, I mean, how many just it's you love sci-fi, right? Anybody? One that I can't stand it. <laughs> They're all excited, like, yeah, you pastor likes sci-fi. No, honestly, I I don't. Um, I like reality shows. I like ones that are real, but there's a lot of people who are into sci-fi shows. You know, if I'm flipping through channels and I come across some sci-fi show, I'm, you know, I can't go fast enough past it. I just don't have any interest. You know, how many have watched, you know, there's plenty of alien invasion movies, right? And how do they most of the time begin? The ship comes, right? Now, in some plots, they see the ship in the beginning. Some of them, they come like E.T. You know, the ship comes, they leave one, and it's not really fully discovered till later. But if we were watching on TV, to say tonight you're watching on TV, you're watching live news, and all of a sudden there are live coverage of some large spaceship hovering in the skies above the United States, and everybody's just waiting to see what they're going to do, right? They're just waiting to see, is this destruction or is this new friends? Is this, you know, what's, what's going on here? Um, but if we were seeing it live on TV, then we'd begin to believe. But normally if someone starts wanting to talk to you about seeing a UFO, what do you think? Crazy, right? I saw a few people saying crazy. You kind of think, oh, crazy, you know? Um, or if they were abducted by aliens, they talk about walking around the ship and interacting with the aliens. We all laugh because we're like, you're crazy. Some people truly believe that. They say, I saw it, it happened to me, but we tend to think they're crazy. Well, in the book of Revelation, if you were to go to um, a local Bible bookstore, you're going to find at least five times the amount of Bible studies, books, studies, anything on like the book of John or on Romans or anything like that, but not a whole lot on Revelation. And part of that is because many people read Revelation as if they're watching a sci-fi movie. They, they read it as in, oh, this is pretty far-fetched, this is wild. Okay, I believe it's true because I have to because I'm a believer, right? But, but there's some stuff that seems pretty crazy. But I'm going to challenge you that John, if we believe the word for exactly what it says, John was caught up in, in uh, these weren't visions through a, a dream, like he fell asleep and just had a dream of something uh, that might come to pass or that might be real. This is, he's actually seeing uh, what is, is there that we don't see yet. If we were able to turn on the TV and see live that we're going into the throne room of God, we'd take it a whole lot more seriously. So when we're reading the book of Revelation, we almost have to look at it like we're getting a live feed into what we can expect to see one day and the things that are going to come to pass. Now we've been in chapter 1. We've skipped over a few uh, sections, but we're trying to move through the book of Revelation the best we can on Wednesday nights. So now we're in chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. And John continues his dramatic description of the, the scene in heaven that he sees. And again, his attention is drawn back to the throne of God. We're going to mainly focus on Revelation 5, 1 through 7. And in the Lord's hand, in this vision, he sees a scroll. It's like Jesus' time iPad. He's got the scroll in his hand. There's writing on both sides, and it's sealed with seven seals. And the way it's laid out, each seal must be broken in succession before more is revealed. So this is unfolding. As these seals are broken, this is unfolding of, of what's uh, contained. And further being that there are seven seals indicates that it was a document of importance. Now today, if we have a document that it has to, 
uh, uh, one thing that makes it important is if you have to get it uh, notarized. Getting a document notarized. It gets stamped off by somebody else. It gets a seal on it and proof that you really signed that document or that document is accurate. The Roman documents, like um, a last will and testament, needed to be sealed seven times. So we can see that this goes back quite a ways, that the sealing of seven, to- uh, seven seals is uh, what really indicates it from even the times of Jesus, what was important. And the scroll could be referenced to Daniel chapter 12 because in Daniel chapter 12, is told, Daniel's told to seal up the book until the time of the end. And when Daniel asks when that time will be, he's told, get out of here. No, he's told, get on your way. Daniel 12, 9 says, go, go on your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the end of time, till the time, till the end of time, till time of the end. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little backwards here. But the time has now come in what John is seeing, uh, but not just anyone can take possession of this scroll. You think of it like the sword and the stone. It's got to be the king. It's got to be the right one. You can't just pour the sword out of stone. You just can't go take the, the, the scroll and the seals. You can't just begin to break them yourself. It can't be anyone. What's in the scroll? Um, well, it contains the rest of the book of Revelation, uh, the future of humanity and planet Earth. Uh, some have said it's literally the, the title deed for the planet because in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, that they literally handed over the deed to the earth to uh, Satan. Because if you remember, what Adam and Eve was given charge over was to have dominion over the earth, right? To, to subdue it. So the seals keep the document secret, and when they are broken, terrible things happen as God judges humanity's sin. Now what John sees is some sort of legal document like a will or a title deed legally sealed with seven seals and this scroll gives authority and power to its recipient to set in motion God's final purpose. So it contains the ultimate of God's purposes which is to reward people by giving them their inheritance. So a lot of folks will focus on the terrible things that happen as are broken but you see it just speaks Uh, significantly to the fact of what God has said from the very beginning. Sin cannot inhabit his presence. So we we tend to be pessimistic. We look at the negative things that happen to seals. Well, but you understand these being broken unfolding is for God to finally bring man back, those who who are in right relationship with God, who have accepted Christ as our Savior, to bring them back into eternal fellowship minus sin and the only way to do that is to eradicate sin to totally wipe it out so so it, it, it may appear to a negative and it is for those who have rejected christ all the way to the end because those terrible things are happening are directed towards them and towards satan so it contains god's ultimate purpose which is giving uh his people their inheritance and on the flip side condemn the wicked basically it contains the destiny of the world so no angel, human, or creature could open the book. God, God's designed it to where he can't just be over here taking care of this and the angel go in there and say, let's just see what's in here. It's, it's his and his alone. 
Not Abraham, not Moses, not Samuel, not David, not Peter, not Paul. None of those saints. Not anybody uh, uh, that's great in man's eyes. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Napoleon, presidents of the United States, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard. Anyone who we see as important could not open the seals. But heaven, earth, and below the earth was searched, but no one in all creation throughout the ages was found worthy, not one. We also see in reference to Scripture in Psalms 143.2 and Romans 3.10 that there is no one righteous, no, not one. So here we see we live in an age where people want to be self-made. We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We feel like we can forge our own destiny without God. But the call goes forth and no one is found worthy to open the scroll. In other words, of all the things that you can control right now, what this is telling us is there is coming a time when no man, no matter what influence, no matter what power on earth he had, no matter what power he might have obtained through sorcery and making a pact with the devil, no one at that time. See, there's folks that believe they think they're on a a pretty uh, comparable side because they've made deals with Satan and they've gotten into Satan worship. But even those, there's no one that is worthy to open these scrolls. There's no one that will have power such as God has when these these scrolls are are open. John understands... um, John understands the enormous significance of the scroll and begins to weep at the terrible calamity. Now, many times I see Christians who almost rejoice in the fact that there's, there's coming a judgment on those who uh, are sinning, which is not the stance we should have. John here confronted with the fact that there's coming a time when there won't be another time to make a choice. There won't be another altar call. There won't be another worship service here on earth. There won't be another opportunity for man to, to change their mind. And John weeps because without the opening of this scroll, evil will continue as well. In other words, he's compassionate. He's hurting for, for those who are bound by sin and that sin continues if, if these scrolls aren't open. We should all be feeling this sorrow, though, because without a Savior, we're merely pawns in Satan's hand. We should all weep when there's no uh, champion for us. But just then, John is told this. This is what he's told in Revelation 5.4. Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, the description of Jesus as a lion comes from Jacob's blessing over his sons. We see that because to Judah, Jacob says he's a lion and that the scepter of uh, the lion and that the scepter of rule will be his in Genesis 49. And then being the root of David comes from the prophet Isaiah, where he says that from Jesse's descendant, whom King David comes from, the Messiah will come who is himself referred to as coming from the line of David in Isaiah 11. So it's still all pointing back to Jesus as, as a lion, but John immediately returns to see this great lion that has just been described. So describing Jesus as the Lion King, the true Lion King, um, a, a, a vision of a powerful, powerful uh, uh, beast, if you will, 
And then John immediately turns to see this great lion that's just been described, but he doesn't see a lion. In fact, he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, but one with death wounds, mortal wounds. He's just as John the Baptist described him saying, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And so while the angel in heaven see him as a lion, John sees him as the lamb. But why the lamb? Well, because he gave his life as that perfect sacrifice for sin. And as a lamb, Jesus is the grace and mercy of God personified. So I want to stop here for a moment because in, uh, in our day and age, one thing I, I'm afraid we might be losing in the church is um, we're not always going deep enough to understand what we're reading. We just read it and say, okay, we're supposed to accept it because that's just what the word says. In old school, the way we're raised, you don't question it. What the Word says, that's what it is. But why the Lamb? Why, why is this? And, you know, we talked about this a little bit, I think it was on Sunday, that why does there have to be bloodshed? You see, the problem is, in our mindset, we want to set the norm for what should be required for sin. So, in other words, if, if I am a kid and I steal some candy from the store, and you ask me what my punishment should be, my punishment, I should say, would probably say as a kid, is just, oh, just tell me not to do it again, right? Or, or if you ask a, um, a, a murderer what their punishment should be for murder, they might say, well, just give me 20 years in prison, you know, thinking at least it's not life or it's not death. So you see, those things are all subjective to those who are guilty of a sin. So when we talk about sin and penalty for sin, this is before really before man even existed, was the standard, and that is death. But see, we lose, we lose sight of that, the fact that every time we sin, we actually, because it's God's ways, not ours, it's because he created all things, he gets to say what the ground rules are, and the ground rules are every time you sin, you deserve death, bloodshed, but your own bloodshed. Now see, if you, you work for PETA or something like that, you go to Old Testament, and they're, they're, they're killing all these animals for their sins. And it, it sounds cruel, but the thing is, is God's way of saying, I have compassion. I don't want you to die every time you sin. So I've made a covenant with my people that you can offer the blood of the, the best animal you have for your sin. But you see, man keeps messing things up, right? And, and pretty soon God's like, well, you know, man can't even really get that right. And so Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, and now he's seen as the lamb. O- the only one perfect enough. You see, Jesus was the only thing God had that God had control over, if you will. His own son, there's only thing that he had that was perfect enough to forgive man for his sin for all time. If they accept that forgiveness and accept that salvation. So this is why the lamb, because he gave his life as that perfect sacrifice for sin. And as the lamb, Jesus is the grace and the mercy of God personified. So Jesus was able to take the scroll and open the seals because he was worthy having no sin. And he conquered and was victorious. He earned the right by paying the price 
by the blood he shed upon the cross. And when he, he rose from the dead, he proved that he alone conquered sin, death, and Satan. You see, now you start to put the pieces together. Why did he have to go take the keys to death, hell, and the grave? Is because he had to show that Satan is not worthy to hold on to him. That he is with sin. There's nothing that has sin in it that is worthy to hold that scroll, to have the keys to death, hell, and the grave, and to have power over the ultimate destiny of man. In the song, the 24 elders sing that we went over before, and in this reference they say, Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. In Revelation 5.12. So let's take uh, a moment and look at um, a lion who is a lamb and what it means to us. A lion who is a lamb. Now how can a lion be a lamb? I mean, the two are opposites. One is a hunter, the other is prey. One is placed in a cage with iron bars, the other in a petting zoo in some instances. A lion-like lamb is an oxymoron. Now, if you've watched um, Napoleon Dynamite, you, you would know that his favorite is a liger. Well, guess what? There truly is such thing as a liger. Um, there, I've seen it on YouTube, and if it's on YouTube, it has to be true. But there are ligers. But can you imagine... a how would you mix lion and lamb? A lamb, really. But, you know, you can't almost blend picturing those two as one. They're just so dissimilar. But the terms do not belong together, and that is except in heaven, because here the lion is the lamb. His power was found in his death, because with his death he purchased people's souls, making him worthy to open the scroll. And then there's some other symbolism we need to look into with the number seven concerning the seals. The number seven represents God and his perfection. Then the seven horns represent the fact that he is uh, omnipotent, that he is having divine power. And the seven eyes represent his wisdom, that he is uh, omniscient, and that he has all wisdom. And then the seven spirits of God represent the Holy Spirit, which we know um, that the believers, as we mentioned in the Acts account, were filled, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit and power. And also, Jesus is the one who ushered in the Holy Spirit. When he rose back after the crucifixion, after being seen by the disciples, he says, wait for the Comforter, the Comforter's going to come. So we see these references to seven in, in several different aspects of, of Scripture. So then from the lion turned lamb and examining the scroll, there are three truths we see here. Here's the main meat of the message tonight uh, with everything we've talked about as a backdrop. The first truth we see from this is that God's strength is disguised as weakness. God's strength is disguised as weakness. When I, when I say that, one of the instances in Scripture I remember is when Jesus before Pilate and Jesus remains silent at some of the accusations. Now, you and I, if we get accused of something we aren't or isn't true or didn't do, well, for guys, what happens? Mysteriously, some air comes from somewhere else in our body and goes into our chest, right? We, <laughs> I mean, there's a physiological reaction that when we're accused of something that's not right or not true, we're about to try to make th set that right. Chest puffs up. We feel our temperature rise, right? Breathing increases. We're getting ready to tell that person exactly what we think. So different than what is natural to our sinful nature that god's strength is disguised as weakness um the secret to god's strength is his apparent weakness 
we look at the Lamb of God dying on the cross, was there any greater appearance of weakness on God's part? I mean, you know for a fact that some of his followers cowered after that, thinking that that was defeat. Even though Jesus tried to tell them what was coming, tried to tell them he's the Son of God, tried to explain to them that there's things that he must do for his king to be ushered in. But humanly, we would see that as, as defeat, as weakness. They even taunted Jesus saying, come down from the cross if you're the Son of God in Matthew 27, 40. So Jesus' power was hidden in apparent weakness and Isaiah prophesied about this saying, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before the shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7. The irony is, is that Jesus was able to come down from the cross but he chose not to. Meeting with some of the guys in Benton County Jail recently, we were having a really powerful um, session. Just what I've been doing is God's been using Sundays and Wednesday nights, and somehow in that moment, God's been blending them. I just felt impressed to just go in there and trust the Holy Spirit to, to bring a word that day. And from questions and discussions, it just forms, and it's been powerful. And there's a young man in there that asked for prayer that said, and I can believe by the expression on his face, he says, I have no more feelings. He said, I've been locked up long enough. My life's been rough enough. I don't cry. I don't feel bad. I have no remorse. I have no feelings. I have nothing. I exist, but I have no emotion. I have no thoughts of I love, I hate, whatever. It's just indifference to everything. And so we are praying for him, but, but he, <clears throat> he was confusing some things as, as showing weakness. And he described the fact that one of the, the things he encounters in prison is that if you walk in and you show any weakness, then everybody uh, picks on you at that point. And so if they have somebody in a family puts money on their commissary where they can buy things you know, for, that they need in their cell, then you know, he would get it and then these guys would come and just take it from him. And there was other believers there that, and Mickey and I talked about this, believers that would see it happen, but they wouldn't come to his aid and that bothered him. And, they, and he said, but then I began to understand if they jumped to my aid, then the other guys would all see them as weak and jump on them. And you see, that is probably one of the places that would be the hardest for the believer to get this concept, that, that silence and, and allowing things to happen that are bad for you, no matter how bad they get, is not a sign of weakness, but is a sign of strength. And telling you, I, I told him what Scripture teaches on this. I said, but I'm telling you, if I'm in your spot, being a pastor, if I'm in your spot, I can't tell you that I can do this now without being faced with it. I would trust and hope that I could. But I said, you know, I talked about in the, in the time when the Romans had the, the Israelites in captivity, there was a law that if a Roman soldier asked a Jewish person to carry their stuff, they had to, they had to carry at least a mile. And then... Then scripture, you know, Jesus tells them that, but I tell you, carry it too. You know, you're supposed to, you're supposed to go twice as the distance. And so those are hard concepts because in our natural state of mind, our sinful nature, we think about protecting ourselves. We think about what we think is just, what we think is right. But in the kingdom of God, when you look at the, the reference to Jesus as a lion and a lamb, you see that not always can you respond as a lion and be Christ-like. But many times you have to respond as a lamb. And I'm not saying it's just for guys, but many times it's even harder for guys. We don't want to be punked. We don't want to be, you know, looked at as a weak one. 
We want to show how macho we are and how we could stand up to things, how we could take it. But see, that's not the way Jesus always responded. We can see times, and we love the times when Jesus went into the temple and drove out the money changer and kicked over tables, kicked tails, took names, right? Oh, that's my Jesus, but not the one that's going to ask me to, to let wrong be done to me, to glorify him, to, to, to show his type of strength. What God was doing was the most powerful act he would ever perform. Christ's redemptive act on the cross was his greatest hour. It was, it was greater than creation and greater than bringing this world to an end. His strength was hidden, but it was God's most powerful moment. You see, there's something ingrained in us that identifies with what Christ did that will prove to you that really what we truly are stamped to believe, apart from sin, is those signs that look like weakness are strength through him. I think about the example I've brought up, and I don't know if I've showed the video, but there's one of those National Geographics where the water buffaloes are out there. I think it was the water buffaloes are out there frolicking. They're playing. They're drinking from the dirty water and getting muddy. You know, a, uh, a water buffalo's best day ever. And then here comes the predator, right? Here comes the lion. And the lion goes and sees a little water buffalo off to his side. And the lion goes to attack the little water buffalo, and he starts scampering, trying to get away, and he's sinking his teeth in one. But then all the other water buffalo come and decide to surround the lion and start beating the tar out of that lion. Right? Now, see, that feels good, doesn't it? We like the, you know, the poor water buffalo. Now, let me tell you something. If you were stuck in the middle of a bunch of water buffaloes with no way to get out and you made one mad, you might not feel bad for the little water buffalo. You might not be like, get him, lion. But the fact is we like the one who is the underdog, right? And we get out. And see, yet we can't seem to understand and translate that Jesus it was a deferred strength because he was going to rise again. He wasn't just getting his tail kicked for no reason, and he wasn't doing it in weakness. He was doing it because some people are not going to get it, and some of them he tried to tell them the Son of God, but they wanted to kill him for it. And so it was, it was the way of a great and gracious and all-wise father and his son who said, all right, you're going to find out how much love I have for you. You're going to find out how much restraint I have because I have ultimate power to smite you. You're going to find out just how much I can be patient and wait till you finally get it, that I love you this much. So yes, you're going to kill my son. But he's going to take a little three-day vacation from heaven and go down and kick Satan's tail and take the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He's going to come up here. He will be the Lion King. But John still saw him as a lamb. Why? Because he was a lamb for John. The only time he needs to be a lion is in front of Satan and the enemies of God. What God was doing was the most powerful act he would ever perform. The reality is that he rules the universe despite what anyone thinks. That he'll bring the world to its appointed end. The Bible says because the foolish of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things to put the world to shame the things which are mighty. 1 Corinthians 1, 25 and 27. So Jesus now has the power over sin and death and all who believe in him are redeemed and that is taken by force from Satan from his realm 
and they are now part uh, part now are part of God's kingdom as children of God and if his children are then heirs people who follow Christ are ridiculed and even persecuted but they're still heirs but those who truly love God will follow and live for him because of who he is rather than what they can get from him only those who love truth regardless of how weak or irrelevant it may appear will follow him another part of the conversation i had with those men is about why we don't see god answer our prayers uh, many times what we feel like god is not answering prayers and i brought up to them because many times we're praying about things that are to benefit us and I'm not saying that that's always bad, but many times that's our mode is, is what we can get from God. But, but people who follow Christ are, are ridiculed, even persecuted, but those who truly love God will follow and live for Him because of who He is rather than what they can get from Him. We could go all around that topic for a long time. I could take you back again once more for the hundredth time to the story of the prodigal son and look at what, God, what Jesus was trying to tell us about why we live for God, doing it for the right motives. Doesn't matter if you do all the Ten Commandments, if you're doing them for the wrong reasons, you're still wrong. In other words, in that story, the older brother, he wasn't staying in work, he can doing everything the father said because he loved his father, he did it to get his stuff. It doesn't take courage to follow what everyone else believes. What it takes is courage to follow the truth when others do not understand and belittle what you believe. It takes courage to do the right thing even though you are punished for it at work or at school. It takes courage to stand up for what's right even when everyone else thinks you're wrong. Let me tell you something. I, I, I don't tell you some of my stories for any glory to me because it's all God, and I'll tell you that. But uh, back again when I was at Walmart, there was times, you know, Bible study that started. I didn't ask permission, even though that was the mode to do things. It's God moved on me to start a prayer meeting one morning. It took off. We had 70 people. And the next day we had 50 people. Then we had 30. Then we had back to 50. And then, and then years later, we still had a group that met every morning, same time for prayer. It started because we're praying for a man who had begun 24 hours to live. And everybody knew him. I didn't know him that well, but everybody else did. He'd worked there a long time. Because we interceded, we came, no matter what the rules were, we said, hey, God has moved on my heart. I'm going to gather people to pray. Uh, in obedience going out, God moved on the hearts of other believers who were, who were hiding out at work. And once they saw the encouragement of others who would stand, even in the point of being in trouble in their job, and say, you know what, God is first. I will, I will do what he tells me to do in the face of any danger, any persecution, any repercussions. But greater is he that is in you than Satan and the forces of evil that are in the world. And while the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket, when you die, you'll be on your way to glory, having conquered because Jesus, the Lamb of God, conquered. I can't imagine the feeling to be caught up in the air, to know all this, all that we've done, from my youth of struggling with all the sins that you have as a youth, and then how they transitioned, and I just struggle and struggle, even as a pastor, the things that, that, that Satan tries to throw your way, to finally be caught in the air and say, it's done. There's no more of the junk. We don't have to stand and debate theology anymore. It's right before our eyes. We've had faith. We believed when we couldn't see, and now we can see what we had believed. 
And I don't know if we'll have time to shed tears or feel sorrowful for those who rejected all the way to the end. But I know right now my heart is heavy for those who continually lack to see this. They still think it's like a sci-fi show when they open the book and the stories of old that they still can't be sure of truly existed, truly happened, and are true to their life. The second truth we see from the lion turned lamb and examining the skull is God has a plan. There is a scroll, and because there is a scroll in God's hand, there is a plan. And seeing that it's in God's hand means that it will be fulfilled. There's not a question of whether the plan is going to work. There's not a question of whether it's the best plan. It is the best plan because it's God's plan. And God has the plan, and he's going to carry it out. History is headed somewhere. The scroll is written on both sides from end to end so that there is no room for anyone to add anything else to God's plan. And we see in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, it says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all the things in heaven and all the things together under one head, even Christ. So this was God's purpose. This was God's plan that everything in heaven and on earth, even under the earth, would be put in Christ's authority. And the good news is that just as God has plans for heaven and earth, he also has plans for you and me. I stopped believing a long time ago that heaven is about sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, and eating grapes. You know, and no, we don't have wings because we won't be angels. There's a lot of folks that believe you're going to turn into an angel. You don't turn into an angel. God has created you, especially the way you are, for a reason. Your perfected body will not be that of an angel, but it will be of a perfected um, creation of a man that God created you to be. And then Jeremiah 21.11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And Jesus said this, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. You see, we get it backwards sometimes. God, if you'll just do this, I'll serve you. God, if you'll just get me out of this turmoil in my life, I'll serve you. And what, what Jesus is trying to say is, and God's saying is, I only think of good things for you. I only, only want good things for you. Jesus said, my plans, it's all only good for you. The problem is you're making everything that I want to give you and do your life contingent on whether I do things the way you want them done or do them or or not. The third truth we see from the lion turned lamb and examine the scroll is God is in control. Sometimes we look around at the world and it seems like evil's winning. But we have the Bible and we know who wins in the end. God is in control. Appearances are deceiving. Things are not always what they appear. The lion is a lamb, but the lamb is also a lion. It all depends on the perspective of who's facing him. You see, when Satan faces Jesus, it's never as a lamb. He's never the lamb in front of the enemy. He's always a lion. But when we come to him broken and needing, uh, needing healing and needing him to mend our lives and to bring us into relation with him, He appears to us just like as to John as the Lamb. On October 30th, 1974, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman squared off in the boxing match in Zaire. It was dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle. 
And Foreman was considered the favorite because of his devastating punch, but Ali did something that no other fighter dared that dared do. He held up his arms blocking. He let Foreman go at him with everything he had. Uh, swing after swing after swing, he leaned back against the ropes and allowed Foreman to punch away. Foreman beat Ali until he could punch no more. When the moment came, Ali bounced off the ropes and knocked out Foreman. And Ali called this technique rope-a-dope. He was always in their face, wasn't he? Even though it looked like he was losing the fight, he was in control the whole time. He took all those punches because he knew he would deliver the final punch. Listen, I walked through, um, whether it's through the halls of the jail or through when I was at Walmart, those halls, and there's always going to be those who oppose God. There's going to be always those who think that what you're doing is worthless, that what you're doing for God and, and that the gospel is worthless and it's not doing anything for anybody. You know, I can walk through jail and there's deputies who are glad we're there, who are believers, who know. And there's some of them who may not be believers yet, but, but want others to be believers. And then there's those who think it's a waste of time and that we shouldn't be there. And you know, you can tell different attitudes depending on who you're dealing with, but, but it doesn't matter because we are not called to put up a fight in their face and make them subdue, or subdue them to us. We're to go the distance. Let them wear themselves out that maybe they'll come to believe. Maybe they'll get so tired of fighting against the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit because they keep encountering believers that finally they'll be in a tender moment where they say, you know what, I don't know why I felt so angry toward these people. I don't know why because it seems like all it is is for people's good. It seems like all it is for my good. And then God brings to light the scripture where they confirm it, that God and his son only want what's good for them. That everything contained in that word is all designed to bring peace and bring love back into life and bring them in right relationship with God so that for eternity they can be back to the state that God intended all along in the garden. That of peace, perfection without, without sin, and to be perfect communion with God for all eternity. Revelation 6, 15-17 says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? The battle may be long and weary. It may even appear as if you're losing the battle. But keep leaning on God. And while this may appear to be weakness to others it's your strength and it will triumph in the end paul said therefore i take pleasure in infirmities infirmities in reproaches and needs in persecutions in distresses for christ's sake for when i am weak then i am strong the lion who is a lamb proved himself worthy to break the seals and open the scroll of man's destiny by living the perfect life of obedience to God, dying on the cross for sins of the world and raising from the dead to show his victory and power over sin and death. Only Christ can conquer sin and only Satan can be the one that, that pays the ultimate price when he has drug away every person that he can. Eventually, it's not what some may believe that it's one final destruction. 
No, the lake of fire isn't a place where you go and he's just totally smoldered out for all time. That's a place where he'll never be able to escape and those, his demons and those who have chosen to be in his God will spend an eternal separation from God in torment. The Lamb of God who died for us has already won the greatest battle of all time for mankind. But we're not worthy to usher in God's destiny. We only find our destiny in Jesus and Jesus' plan for our life. I want to read to you Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. As we begin to wrap it up. Reading from the ESV, says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and, a pre- and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels, numbering myriads and, of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The Lamb takes the scroll And once the book of destiny was taken, those in heaven pay adoration to the one worthy to take it. And then Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. The term ransom was used of a slave's freedom being purchased for a, for, for a sum of money and our redemption was accomplished by the payment Jesus made at the cross through his blood so we can receive so we can receive a release from the bondage of sin and death and it's by the blood of the lamb that we have been redeemed in 1 Peter 1 18 through 19 we see reference to that and then further the song of the redeemed extends to the entire world God's message of salvation and eternal life It's not limited to a specific culture or race. There's many people who are going to be sadly uh, mistaken. In the end, they're going to find out that God didn't send his son just for the United States. And he didn't send his son just for a particular people group. But it's for all. It didn't matter whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And here's the point. If we can't stand and worship the Lord with others, no matter their race or nationality or gender, How can we think about worshiping God in heaven? Jesus, by his redemption and sanctification, has brought us into existence a new creation and who was slain for us. The apostle Peter said, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's more reference that's going on when we talk about the incense being offered that uh, seen as the prayers of the saints, uh, probably largely the prayers like we pray. 
Jesus, come quickly because this world is messed up. Lord, come quick because it's getting worse. I don't know how much more I can take, Lord, but we know that those are the prayers of the saints. And so this entire, this entire um, scripture that we're looking at tonight, the whole gist of it is that God, through mighty works, through all powerful works, through those scrolls, through even terrible things that are to come to those who oppose him, God is going to finally restore his people back to a state of free from sin, totally free from all the bondage that we've experienced. I've said over and over again, the harder I try to think about it, it's like laying under the sky, under the stars, looking up on a clear night and trying to fathom the distance from one star to another. It's just beyond imagination. That's how I feel, I feel when I begin to try to fathom what it would be like to be rid of the sinful nature, be in a perfected body, and be with you guys and others. I mean, we don't think about that often. How, how kind of surreal it might be to be standing in heaven knowing that we made it and that this is done and, and even those small things you've done that, you know, cleaning the church one day, um, the things that people don't see, you know, uh, getting ready to, to serve the children and teach them a lesson, those things that God is keeping account of that is all part of his plan to bring redemption back to his people for us to be there for all eternity. Never underestimate any act that you do that you do within the right heart for the kingdom of God. I may, I may miss it. I may not give you the recognition you deserve, but, keep, uh, but God is keeping track. Don't worry if someone else knows or not. God is noticing. And he wants to bring you to a point where we can celebrate all those things. Even the things you thought were small, but celebrate them in heaven. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for your word. God, we thank you that you have uh, revealed to us through your word some things that, God, you, you chose to show us that are, are yet to come. Lord, things through your word that, that uh, Apostle John was able to, to see, Lord, and, and relate to us. And God, I pray that we would take these things and not uh, shy away from them and look at them as if they're some sci-fi show that we don't need to pay attention to the details that God you put them there for us to get a glimpse of your power and your glory and how Jesus you'll be coming back yes as a lion to face the enemies of God but how we'll always see you as our lamb that was slain for our sins we thank you for this in Jesus name amen amen Amen. All right. Well, love y'all. And keep in mind uh, the things going on this weekend, Saturday. Uh, by the way, folks, I still don't have breakfast lined up for Saturday. If anybody's itching to get in and bake something or make something for breakfast Saturday, please see me after service. I uh, definitely appreciate the help. Um, anybody that's willing to do that. Love y'all. Have a great weekend. <laughs>